I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfear. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Today we have a story of adventure, but it's not what you think. It's not your typical adventure, you know, where you throw the bags on the bike and you head off to a distant land and then you come back with some anecdotal stories of being stuck in the mud and dealing with flat tires. No, this is the other story. This is the one you don't want to hear. You know, the one where the naysayers are always saying, you can't go and do that because there was this guy who went and this happened. Well, this is that story and this is that guy. Although there's tragedy in the story, the story is not about tragedy. It's about overcoming obstacles, and it's about keeping your focus on what's important in life. And it's about the greater good. It's a great story. I have to warn you, though, if you have small children listening, you best give them something else to listen to. And if you're queasy, you don't like graphic things, well, there's a certain part in this story later on that you may want to skip over when it comes up. Otherwise, I think you're going to get a lot from it. Glenn Hegstead started out with a a bit of a rough life by most people's standards. At the age of 16, he hit the road traveling after reading Jack Kerouac's novel, On the Road. And between living on the streets and living in different foster homes, Glenn grew up kind of rough. And he ended up being a member of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. But Glenn soon came to the realization that it wasn't for him, that he wanted to do something else with his life, that he was more motivated than that. So he retired from the Hells Angels, and in 1979, he started martial arts training, and he eventually earned black belt teaching credentials in various disciplines. In fact, Glenn ended up running one of the most successful martial arts training schools in his area and was highly respected for his achievements in martial arts and for his ability to train, especially troubled youth. He did that for many years until a point where he decided he would retire from the martial arts competition. The natural next step was to load up his bike and travel the world. And he started out on an adventure heading down to South America, but it didn't work out like most adventures. Glenn was captured by ELN rebels and they kept him for five weeks. They beat him, they tortured him, they starved him. They ran him almost to death. And that in itself, would have been the end, I think, for many people's adventure. But from that horrible incident, Glenn picked himself up, kept on, on his initial adventure, then returning again to South America and eventually traveling the world. Glenn is now an author and motivational speaker. He's written two books. He's traveled solo around the world on his motorcycle. Glenn has been featured in media all around the world, from newspapers to magazines to television, things like CBS, MSNBC, CNN, NPR, Larry King Show, and National Geographic Channel did a docudrama on his experience in Colombia. And he's truly an inspiration to listen to, as you're going to hear in his story today. My name is Glenn Hegstead. Um, I'm a professional bum. And I live part-time Mazatlan, Mexico, part-time Palm Desert, California, and part-time Palomar Mountain. 
You started out quite some time ago, and I don't have the year in front of me, uh, riding your motorcycle, planning to go out and ride the world is what you were doing. I understand that you stopped uh, doing uh, competitions as far as martial arts go, and you headed out on an adventure. Can you tell us about that? I retired from martial arts, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and judo competition. I was 49, and you know I'd done a number of uh, world and national events and I'd won just about all my divisions on everything over the years, and all I was doing was beating myself up more. So I, um, when you train on that level, that's what you do every day. That's You don't really have a life. You pretty much live like a monk. You're just training for your event. So if you stop training, um, <laughs> you have to have something to fill that gap. So I always wanted to take an extended motorcycle ride. And I did a warm-up ride to Guatemala uh, just for the heck of it. And had such a wonderful time that uh, I came back and decided to go to South America. When you say you're just beating yourself up, you mean that literally? Well, I mean, even in judo practice, you're going over somebody's shoulder 30 to 60 times a night. That's just your warm-up, you know, and and then you fight. Uh, And then you go to competitions and you fight guys that have been training all year with you in mind. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're we're all gunning for each other. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, when they have a, an, an international event, they got the best out of Japan, the best out of Russia, the best out of Germany and around the world. And we all say, you know, we're going to win. You know, you don't go there to pick up a silver. There's only, you know, there's, there's only one spot and that's the gold. If you ain't the lead dog, the view is all the same. So that's a really high pressure, very exciting lifestyle. And then you decide to change it and, and head out on a motorcycle adventure. Had you been riding before this or have you always been a biker? Oh, I, uh, I, I guess I started like most uh, motorcycle fanatics, you know, probably around 12 years old with a little mini bike and graduated to the step through Honda fifties and graduated from high school and got a 650 triumph and, uh, and got a Harley and ran off and, joined an outlaw motorcycle club for a couple of years and decided I didn't like sitting in jail. So I I moved on from that and, um, started training full time in martial arts. And, uh, when I wasn't competing, I was riding somewhere. I did, I did my first international ride though. When I was uh, living in, in the Southeast Asia back in the eighties, I had a Yamaha V max and I uh, shipped it to Penang, Malaysia and smuggled it into Thailand. Cause at the time, the biggest bike I think was, maybe 100 or 150 cc's. So I had this big, massive VMAX, and I found a smuggling route where they were just driving in caravans about five miles away from the actual border, going in from Hat Yai down in uh, the border from uh, Thailand and Malaysia. So I got, I got my bike into uh, Thailand, and I, you know, I rode around up to Cambodia, and I couldn't get into Laos at the time with a motorcycle, so I had actually the first individual visa they gave, and I took a bicycle across across at Nong Kai, the river up there, and um, got into Laos and rode a bicycle across Laos because I could convince myself at least I was on two wheels. <laughs> and that was like 1987 or something. And then, you know, I then back down around. I think to get into Burma was pretty restricted. You could get in for, you know, little short hops inside the border, but not really deep inside the country at the time. You know, I did Malaysia and down to Singapore and as far as I could get. The big one where I did the earth ride was uh, 2004. I, I had rode uh, down to Guatemala, you know, and I had such a wonderful time. 
And this was in, gosh, I think 1999. And you know, all the horror stories everybody tells you when you tell them what you're going to do and, oh, don't do this and you're going to die. And <laughs> so it was funny that everybody said the same story. Even my Mexican-American friends said, oh, man, it's, it's crazy. The, the banditos are going to rob you and the police are going to rob you. And, uh, but then they all said, oh, the women, they'll be all over you. The, the women are so free toward Americans. So I, of course, jumped on my motorcycle and I get into Mexico and uh, I said, uh, you know, donde están las chicas? And they said, well, where's the girls? They said, las chicas están en la iglesia. The, the girls are in church, you know, and all the guys were, uh, you know, hey, vamos, amigo, let's, uh, vamos a tomar una cerveza. Let's go have a beer. So where's all these guys that are going to rob me? And then where's all the girls? So I get ready to hit Guatemala and the Mexicans said, where are you going next? I said, well, I'm. I'm going to Guatemala. They said, well, Mexico's safe, but uh, be careful because the, the men will rob you and the police will shake you down in Guatemala. And uh, the good thing is the women are very free. They'll be all over you. So I get to Guatemala and I, you know, where's the girls? Well, the girls are in church. And, you know, somebody said, hey, let's go have a beer. <laughs> so then a couple of weeks later, I, where are you going? Well, I'm going to El Salvador. Well, Guatemala is real safe, but uh, it's real dangerous in El Salvador. Uh, but the women, the women will be all over you, you know. Which was a bigger motivator? Was it not believing that someone was going to take advantage of you or believing that the women were waiting for you? <laughs> what was the strongest oh, yeah, I'm, motivation? <laughs> I'm, I'm always holding that channel out <laughs> for the girls. But so far, you know, it was, it was the same thing all the way around the world. All the way around the world, it was, it was the same thing. So what is that? Is that a fear everyone has of their neighbor? Yeah, our country's safe, but watch out for the other guy. So it's what you know is fine, but what, what's across the board or what's over the fence is something you don't know and you find scary. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, Robert Fulton uh, wrote about something like that in his book, too, where he was talking about, um, you know, the people in the next valley. Be careful of them. We're, we're nice, but be careful of the other people. So and it was virtually like that. Every country in Tanzania, you know, they were telling me the same thing about, about Kenya, you know, and Kenya said the same thing about Ethiopia. So. It's an interesting thing what an imaginary line does to us because these people are neighbors. You know, when you have a country beside you, they're your neighbors and you have an imaginary line there that divides the two. And of course, there's your political differences, obviously. Um, but that imaginary line creates a, a wall inside people's minds where they're saying, be fearful. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can imagine here in the U.S. the, the, the horror stories about Mexico. And yeah, there's cartel violence. And, and where I live in Mazatlan, it's in Sino, this uh, province of uh, Sinaloa. And, uh, you know, that's that's the heart of it. But, geez, we don't see it. They're fighting amongst themselves. And um, you could say the same thing. There's places in L.A. I wouldn't go to. Um, but it, as as you know, and everybody else has traveled Mexico, we all come back with these wonderful stories about, uh, you know, Latin hospitality and what wonderful people the Mexicans are. <laughs> Glenn, did you believe any of it when they were telling you that, when your friends warned you about how it could be unsafe? No, I never believed it. I started traveling when I was 16. I read, I read Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road uh, when I was in high school. And uh, the, the next day I stuck out my thumb from California and hitchhiked to New Orleans. And I, and I did a lot of traveling and hitchhiking. And, you know, I've, I've been on river boats and elephant back and chicken bus and on foot to the Himalayas a couple of times. And the thing that you always, you always come back with a fresh outlook on life. You always come back. And I discovered that when I was 16. I came back and I said, my thinking is different. You know, I, I took off with literally not a penny in my pocket. I had nothing. And um, I had three square meals a day and had a warm place to sleep every night. 
And that's because somebody seen this kid out hitchhiking or a traveler, uh, you know, it brought me home, they fed me or took me to a cafe. And so when you're traveling, you meet the best people. And I, I would, I would even go further to say when you travel alone, because when you got a partner, you're kind of talking to that person at the end of the day, and t- instead of talking to strangers uh, to where you're traveling. And you're really finding out that the people in the world are, are pretty much the same, no matter where you go. Oh yeah. I mean, if you ever, I try to explain to people, if you want to restore your faith in humanity, if you're if you're ever wavering and wondering, you know, about people and how bad things really are, go alone, go travel, go travel a developing world and you will come back so inspired. You'll come back so on fire uh, or enthusiasm in general for humanity. It's, um, you know, when you travel around the world, you're just sort of weaving your way into this tapestry of humanity and everybody travels for different reasons. Um, you know, especially on motorcycles, some people want to be the fastest or they want to go the furthest or to the most countries or say they did it the most times and all that. And and the competitor in me applauds that. But for me, I, I want to go see people that look completely different than me. And I see white people, I go the other way. If I'm in a restaurant where they have it in English, I'll go to another restaurant. Um, when I cross a border, the first thing I do is start hammering out the language just so I can talk to somebody else just for that wonderful experience, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I try to uh, to explain all that in, in my book, One Day, One More Day Everywhere. And um, as hard as I was trying, I met this guy, Daniel Reince, this German guy, filmmaker, and I saw his film he did. Um, not to give him a plug or anything, but boy, he sure deserves one. I just saw his trailer and I sent him an email and I said, I was just so impressed with what I saw. And ironically enough, I was in Mexico and he was on his way down in a couple of weeks. So they came and stayed with me, him and his girlfriend and Ingo. And um, I saw his, his documentary and I just, he, he nailed it. Everything, at least for me, everything that I believed in, everything that I tried to say in my book about why we do what we do and that human interaction and, and how that those little disasters along the way that really turns into wonderful experiences. Um, and that, that's true of anything in life. You know, I've always believed that the, a disaster is really a springboard to the next level up. You know, if, if you look at it and, and try to try to say, you know, where does it go from here in a, in a, in a positive outlook. And so, you know, it, <laughs> it's like I, I've been saying my whole life, the adventure begins when things stop going as planned, you know, and, and that's when the really cool stuff happens. How do you define adventure? Is adversity required for it? And is time required for it? Oh, no, no. I mean, you got somebody that's never been anywhere and they're on a cruise ship. That's an adventure for them. So it's relative to your last experience. If you go on a cruise ship every year, the rest of your life, mm, I would encourage that person to, you know, go a little deeper and try something a little bolder. You don't have to like uh, go climb Everest from a cruise ship, but something a little bit different. If you go, if you live your life the same every day for 75 years, did you really live your life? I mean, you know, we got to leave that comfort zone to really discover things about ourselves. And of course, the bigger the challenge that you, that you undertake and and hopefully, uh, you know, ultimately reach all your goals, the more you develop as a human being. So like in martial arts, one challenge after another is, as you're going through your ranks up to your black belts and, and then in competitions and whatnot. So you're, you, 
you're down with the goals and the challenge and then you go into motorcycling or adventure it's it's one more thing you know as, as you're traveling somewhere and you know you get off the beaten path a little bit and maybe your motorcycle breaks down or something happens to you but you know it's going to lead to something better I, I believe that with every fiber of my being and it's not just with me and you know sometimes i wonder if other people feel that way and just about everybody when i read their other their their writings and their books and whatnot we all pretty much just say the same thing you know it's one thing that I always say on this show is that I love about motorcycles is that no matter how good you are, whether it be your skills or your uh, in the actual riding of the motorcycle or your ability to travel through countries, no matter what you 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 do with the bike, you can always learn more. As a matter of fact, I, th- I think when you when you start to feel very comfortable as far as riding skills go on the bike, that's when you start to realize how little you know. Well, it's funny when I I, I prepare for my riding skills before I go. And then I go, the irony is I prepare like heck for my bike and me. And then I travel on a plan of no plan. I don't know if that makes sense, <laughs> but I don't always know where I'm going, but it's like when I took off around the world, uh, I get a, a, a riding course in a weekend with Jimmy Lewis, Jimmy and Heather Lewis. Um, and I got to tell you, he taught me more in a weekend than I learned in 40 years on my own. And there's some rough spots across Siberia, or I guess it's all paved now, but this was an 04. And there was like a thousand mile stretch between Chita and Habarsk. And that's where most people put their bike on the train. Not a lot of guys admit they did it, but from what I'm told, most do. And I, that was, it's all motocross, you know, but a thousand miles of motocross is tough. And um, so that's mostly up on the hill, up on the pegs riding. And I was having a blast and I was silently thanking Jimmy every step of the way, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, as far as bikes and whatnot, you can take any kind of bike uh, from a 50cc bike uh, to a bicycle, you know, or, or uh, a, a big Harley. There's an Australian couple been out there 10, 15 years, uh, you know, on a, on a shovel head, I think it is. And uh, so... They're just good at what they do, you know, and if you watch an accomplished rider, he, he can take a big GS adventure and nudge it across the Sahara, if, you know, if, if, he, uh, if he feels like it, where I don't have the skills for that, but uh, I practiced on a 650, so I could do a lot of things on a 650 than, you know, probably anything a guy could do on a 50. I'm always more impressed by someone who has uh, lesser equipment and greater skills rather than the other way around. Well, yeah, you got to have a lot of skill, the bigger the bike you know, the more the skill. And yeah, it's always commendable to see somebody. I mean, you could go all the way down to, you know, I mean, I saw bicyclists in Patagonia with crosswinds, uh, 80, 90 miles an hour. And it's funny. They're always French. <laughs> Anytime you, you see somebody on an arduous journey on a bicycle, <laughs> they're always French. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you could always say, you know, keep ratcheting down. Well, this guy did it on a 650. Well, this guy did it on a 400. This guy did it on a 50. Yeah, that guy's on a bicycle. <laughs> so I guess they win the prize if you want to, if you want to count the, the people that really go through it. You know? When you headed off on your adventure after you stopped competing professionally, you did run into a problem. And for those who don't know, you wrote the book about your experience and the rest of it, the rest of your ride really called Two Wheels Through Terror, um, which is a, a very telling title. And I'm not a fan of rubbernecking accidents or um, delving into tragedies, but your story is so good, not because of what the people did to you that captured you and held you prisoner that we're going to hear about now, but what you did afterwards. And 
to start off, maybe you could tell us how you ran into trouble initially. Okay. Well, I had uh, done my uh, Guatemala El Salvador ride and I uh, just came back and prepared. I wanted to go uh, down to Tierra del Fuego. And at the time, I didn't really know much about the internet. And I didn't know if anybody else had done it or who was doing it or what. I just figured, you know, each one of those countries has roads and they, people drive across their roads. So I'll drive across them. And, you know, you're doing research like crazy. But at that time, uh, there wasn't that much. I guess this was uh, 2000, 2000, 2001. And, there, you know, there just wasn't that much information on it, even though there were people doing it. And it seemed to be the big thing. There was all this talk about Colombia and the Civil War, you know, but there was also talk about El Salvador and there was talk about Honduras and Nicaragua and, and Guatemala and, you know, parts of Mexico and all this. And people said, well, you should just air freight over the, the dangerous parts. And so, well, OK, and then I'll ride to Mexico City, air freight to Chile and um, ride around an air freight home then or something. Is that what you mean? It's, and as I, as I progressed south, everywhere I went that had all these State Department warnings, I was just meeting nice people. And um, that was in El Salvador, all through Central America. I was just, I had a really nice time. And, uh, you know, I got to Colombia. So, I mean, I, had, I was building my confidence and I got to Colombia and it was right before Christmas. And they said there was a Christmas truce. And uh, the bottom 40% of the country had been seceded to the rebels um, that were fighting the government. So I thought... You know, and everybody I talked to said they're after rich people. They don't care about somebody on a on a motorcycle. They wouldn't even stop you. And so I went as a test ride. I went to Medellin first, and uh, that that was about a two hundred mile from Bogota. And it's a, you know it's a lot of little windy mountain passes. So it's about eight hours to do that. And uh, you know, sure enough, uh, about three quarters of the way through, I, I ran into the rebels, and they uh, they gaffled me up. Uh, scared the daylights out of me. And it was a Marxist group. So I spent five weeks with them and um, they, they roughed me up a little bit and yelled things about the president. And, uh, you know, I, I got interrogated every night by the, uh, by the political officer. And, you know, toward the end, uh, I, I looked at this guy and I said, do you like your government? And he said, no, you know, and I said, do you approve of what your government does? No. I said, uh, well, can you change what your government does? No. And I said, so the individual really here in Colombia doesn't have control over his government. And he said, no. And I looked at him. I said, what the hell makes you think I'm any different? I said, every government in the world is corrupt. Every government in the world is cowed down to international corporations and whatnot. So I'm not soy como tú. I'm just like you. You know, and it, all of a sudden, we kind of looked at each other. And, um, and my treatment didn't get that much better, but it didn't get much worse. Now, uh, you sort of say that you were roughed up. I mean, this was, this was pretty serious treatment. I mean, you, you, were, you were tortured, you were beaten the whole bit. Uh, maybe someone with your physical training in the background um, uh, were, was able to withstand this stuff. But, I mean, this is pretty severe stuff that you went through. Yeah, yeah, it was. And... Um, no, I, my training is for, you know, ring fighting and training for awareness and things. And, you know, um, I had no idea what was going on. They don't tell you anything. Um, and so I saw the game they played. If you asked a question, it was universal answer was Ken Sabe, like who knows, kind of like a smirk. So I stopped. I didn't really ask questions because I could see that wasn't going to get anywhere. 
And a guy from the media was interviewing me afterwards and he says, what did they want from me? And I said, I don't know. And he looked at me and his jaw dropped on. He goes, what do you mean you don't know? He said, didn't you ask? And I said, no. And I, it probably sounds very bizarre right now to anybody listening to this, but all I can say is you had to be there at the time. Um, I had a, a <laughs> the media hates this when I tell what I did, but I had bogus press credentials. And when I was captured and, and, and they would have drug me off the road and I was in their hands, um, they, you know, I, I didn't know who they were. I had no idea what was happening. I didn't know if I was being robbed or they weren't military uniforms. They were just in black, oh, I don't know, like cotton sweatshirts and sweatpants and stuff and these rubber boots and AK-47s, you know, and I asked them who they were and they said ELN and, you know, I just, this was right I want to say two months after Colin Powell declared him a terrorist army. So, I mean, I, <laughs> it was the most horrible feeling it, that you could have at that point. And so I didn't know what to say. And some people may laugh at it or whatever, but in retrospect, I've had plenty of opportunity to play this back and I wouldn't do it any different. And I said, that's wonderful. I've been looking all over for you guys. Um, I'm a writer and I came to like write your side of the story which wasn't a total fabrication because what I was doing is writing down to South America and I was writing stories about the people that I met. Was I looking for the ELN? No, <laughs> but in, you know, in vague terms that could be included in that. So uh, I said, could you do me a favor and take me to the Comandante? You know, and this is pure, pure, pure judo, pure, pure, pure martial art. Good martial art is you don't go force against force, you divert force, you redirect. And that's what I did. If somebody pushes you in judo, you pull. And so I just, they've clearly taken me prisoner and I'm just saying, oh, this is the best day of my life. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I did you didn't capture me, I captured you. And that's, it, it's funny now and they kind of chuckled then like, a, you know, they weren't buying it, but they still weren't sure. And so they said, don't worry, you'll meet the Commandante. And of course that's the guy that, you know, handled my, uh, my interrogations. But it, it, um, it's a story I stuck with the whole time, when I, the whole, my whole time of, of the captivity. So if, if I had told them I came looking for them and then started getting all worried and saying, when are you going to let me go? I never acknowledged that they captured me. So it would have been counterproductive for me to start, you know, trying to talk them into letting me go. I knew they weren't going to let me go. I knew that there was nothing I could do to get out of there. It was the most helpless feeling I've ever had. In every other situation in life, you can break your legs. You can, you could be a paraplegic, a quadriplegic. You'd have your mind. There's, there's an option. There was no option for me. So I just used, you used whatever, you use whatever your background in your life exposed you to or whatever you trained for. It just happened to be, in my case, it was martial arts and not in a physical sense where you'd, you know, attack somebody physically. It was about yielding. And it was about, you know, when, when I felt like they were starving me to death, I was struggling to stay alive. I was, you know, they gave me un vasito de arroz, a little, a little cup of rice in the morning. And, you know, you're marching up and down mountains eight, 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 10 hours a day. Uh, I went in at two twenty as, as an in shape athlete and, you know, <laughs> I came out at 170. That's in five weeks. That's a lot of that's a lot of beef to take off. I wasn't fat. 
you know. And what they were doing is they were feeding you very little and, and running you continuously from one place to another that was probably going nowhere then. Yeah, in retrospect, I figured all this out, but I didn't know at the time uh, what they were doing was that's a way to control me because uh, actually taking a weapon away from somebody wasn't that hard. You know, it, it, it could be done, but there was no place to go. And so they starved you to control you. And all this up and down marching here, I thought I'd gone all this distance. And um, <laughs> it took me a while to figure out we were going in circles. Oh, wow. Yeah, they, it was like a, just a holding pattern. And they had a term, there's a terminology that you learn, like masa arriba means uh, higher and masa bajo means lower. And so as they're taking you away from the road, you're going higher into the mountains, masa arriba. So the higher you go, the longer you're going to stay. If there's a chance of being released, they don't take you far from the from where they grabbed you. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, that's how it goes. So if you hear Masa Riba, uh, you're going higher in the mountains. The further you're going away, the less chances of being turned over or released are. And, you know, and, and foreigners, they hold you a long time because they don't. They make the assumption that that we're all Donald Trump and and, and uh, millionaires, so they'll throw a five million dollar ransom on a, a foreigner. And, um, if, if nobody does anything for six months or a year, then they'll drop it down to 4 million. So that's why they hold foreigners forever. It's just this trial and error they, they want to see. And so the, um, they called the embassy, you know, and they said, here's a good thing about the government is they called the embassy and said, we've taken a, a American hostage. And they said, what's his passport number? Uh, I said, uh, thank you very much. And they hung up the phone. And that's, you know, when so many, that's that, you know, so many words or less, that's, that's what we do. And, uh, and that's a good thing to do because that otherwise, if you pay every time and then, then you're the biggest target, because right now what you don't hear about is the Japanese are the big targets. They grab the Japanese, they grab for money. They grab Americans for political statements, but they grab the Japanese and they say, we want, we want 5 million and the executives, you know, their, their companies will pay it. They say, we'll get it to you right away. They're, they're, they're out in 24 hours. Did you know that you're going to get out at one point? No. No, I didn't. There's no indication of that at all. I can only imagine, I can't imagine. I mean, who could unless you've actually done this? It's one of those things that I think it's easy for everyone to sit back and and weigh judgment on it and hear your story and read your book, which I did several years ago, and and sit there and think, oh, well, you know, what if you did this or what if you did that? But um, we're talking about something that is, is completely almost impossible to understand, I think, unless you've actually been through it. And when you're there, do you lose hope at one point? Do you just get to the point where you just figure that's it? I'm, I'm done. Um, well, I never took my eyes off the prize. The prize was Tierra del Fuego. And I said to myself, I didn't know if I was going to be there for years. And I just, it never entered my mind if I was released to turn around. All I did was plan on if I got out or when I got out was how to continue my trip. And that's, you know, I mean, the media would, they, they, they asked me similar questions, obviously, you know, and I, I said, I, I, I it never entered my mind to turn around and they always looked at me like kind of puzzled. And, you know, the FBI hostage release team that came to pick me up from the red cross, uh, who facilitated the release with the ELM, um, they just made the assumption I, you know, I, I was in pretty bad shape that I, I wanted to be in a hospital somewhere. And I said, I don't want a hospital. I want another motorcycle. 
And um, I mean, the first call on the Red Cross Center was from my, my best friend, you know, and he didn't say, are you all right? Are you sick? Are you tired? Do you want to come home? He said, don't worry, brother, another bike's on the way. <laughs> you know? And uh, I mean, I just didn't, I, I, it wasn't for a split second that I ever take my eyes off that, you know? And I, so maybe from martial arts, we get so fixated on our goals, you know, that we're after in competition and whatnot, that we never, we never imagined losing. You know, you're going, you don't even imagine a silver medal in a major event. You, you only visualize a gold medal. That's it. You don't, you know. So I just, I, maybe that was just the mental programming. I, I never saw it as anything different than that. How did you get out? Well, it's kind of a long story, but um, when they wanted me, uh, when it seemed to me they were starving me to death, I wasn't really sure how far things were going to go. I noticed after the beatings that I wasn't really hurt. If somebody wanted to hurt me, they could hit me with logs and whatnot and break bones. I had no broken bones, so I thought, well, at least they want me to walk. If they were breaking bones, then there's nowhere to go. There's no um, mechanized machinery to take you anywhere. You're in the mountains. There. Everything is by foot. There is nothing. There's not little dirt bikes. Or, there's mules and horses and things like that, but that's it. So if they break your leg, you're not going anywhere. If they break your bones, you're, you're stuck where you are. So by the fact, I could only guess what they wanted. You know, and I, I just, I, it just, it just never, you know, it was never clear to me what was going to happen. So during the, during, toward, toward the end of it, um, they, they made one serious mistake with me as they, they laughed at me. And I had taken everything from them, you know, accepted it. And every time something terrible would happen, I would play it back to say to myself, well, I can remember earlier in life, I got beat up worse in a judo tournament uh, than these guys just beat me up. Or, you know, this hardship I'm going through now, I've been through something like that before. So I would always equate it to something in the past. And um, they weren't getting anywhere. And they were doing the shining the light in my eyes every 15 minutes to wake me up at night and the sleep deprivation and whatnot. And they, I don't know how to explain it. It's like when somebody, when you catch somebody laughing at your misfortune, you get like this giant second wind. It would be like, um, it's just a certain line that somebody crosses. Let's say you're walking down the street with your woman and a guy pulls a gun out and he's going to rob you. It's like, whoa, okay, okay, here's the money. Just don't hurt us, you know. Um, and he reaches over and he grabs your girlfriend on the butt and he goes, hey, that's pretty nice. Doesn't everything change at that point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's true. I can't. For, I can't speak for a woman, but for a man, that, that's something, there's certain things that just change that equation. And all of a sudden now something's worth dying for. And um, they had told me that, uh, you know, they, they gave me this story about a false release. Uh, Red Cross was going to uh, release me. And um, so they, they just played this game, you know, and I, I had no physical strength left, you know, and I'm trying to run through the jungle and they're telling me, hurry, 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 we got to get to this Red Cross helicopter's landing on the plateau. And, you know, I'm down on my hands and knees and scrambling to get up to this plateau. And of course the helicopter doesn't come and I'm standing up there like a madman. They did that to me three times. And what I couldn't figure out was three guys took me off and left the rest of the camp of like 20 guys behind. And then when we got to this plateau, 
those, the rest of those guys were already there ahead of us. And it never dawned on me that these guys were just running me in a circle and was probably 500 yards from where those guys already were, you know, earlier that morning. So I, I look over and I see them mocking me and laughing. And uh, I could feel myself, um, you know, cracking mentally. And that's the scary part. You know, when you're hurt physically, you can deal with that as long as you have your wits about you. But I could feel myself um, uh, uh, sliding away. And that was their mistake. I, I saw them mocking me and laughing and, you know, imitating me, looking around with this wild-eyed look and whatnot. And, and uh, so that's when I just I went on, basically went on a hunger strike. The only way I could uh, take control uh, was to sabotage my own health. And for anybody that knows jujitsu, that's what you do. You, know, you utilize that, that force, you redirect it. And that's how you take control. And so I actually, uh, I refused to eat after that. Why did you think they would care if you ate? Because um, I, I had one of the female rebels that was kind of talking to me. And um, they're, they're youngsters, they're idealists. And they don't really know what's going on. There's one or two that come out from the city, but the rest of these campesino kids, and they're starving in the mountains. The government didn't give a damn about the people. And they're starving. When I mean starving, it's something goes beyond what we can comprehend when there's nothing to eat. And I saw it firsthand. When I say nothing, I mean not a grain of rice, nothing. In these houses, and they go weeks and days and, uh, without food. And here comes these armies, the FARC or the ELN, and you know, a sack of rice a month for your firstborn. Well, you do what you, you can, you know, and that kid doesn't have any idea what he's fighting for. I mean, they had some of them, their weapons had no bullets. Some of them had half a magazine. They didn't know what they're doing. And I asked this, this gal, you know, and they would talk to me, the, the kids. I, I call them the kids, the young rebels. They were teenagers, you know, and, and they actually liked me. The older guys hated me because they'd been indoctrinated by the, by the Marxist thing. And it was a Cuban-sponsored group and all that sort of thing. So every night I heard all the ranting about imperialists and the Yankees and all that kind of stuff. So the, the young guys liked me. And I, and I talked to this one gal, Anna, you know, I said, hey, Anna, if I, uh, if I ran off down the trail right now, she's, she's guarding me. She's, you know, supposedly. I said, would you shoot me? And she looked at me like with shock on her face. She said, of course not. You're my friend. <laughs> it's like it never, it's like it's not clear to them what they were doing. You know, they got this little Robin Hood thing going. I said, no, you don't understand. You have a gun and I don't. They're telling you, you know, they're making the assumption because you have the gun. I'm talking about they, the, the commandantes. I run, you're supposed to shoot me. That's, that's the, the implication here. And she goes, Glenn, I wouldn't shoot you. <laughs> so, but I got her in a lot of trouble because that night she did a lot of thinking and then she refused to carry a gun after that. Of course, they called her a traitor and a puta and all these names. And um, I, I don't know what happened to her. But she was kind of sharing information and, and, and telling me that, uh, that uh, they wanted me alive. And so at that point, if I knew they wanted me alive, the best thing I could do to antagonize them is to, is to basically take my own life and starve myself to death. And I had experienced in uh, my Chinese arts and meditation drills, we've done three and sometimes 10-day uh, fasts. And those take you on, on completely different levels in, in yoga and meditation. It's really good for you, believe it or not. So I'd done it before, but starting that already suffering from a malnutrition and basically, you know, starving myself to death while starving my death was kind of a challenge. The good news is when you do a fast, the first three days you're hungry, but after that you cross a line and, and you don't think about food anymore. How long did you starve yourself for? 
Well, I mean, uh, it was a week. So I got to the point where, you know, it's funny because you get to, your thinking becomes crystal clear. It's such a great spiritual exercise. And you'll, you know, if you read about spiritual leaders, they'll do that. They'll, they'll go on a fast and pray and all that. And I mean, Gandhi did it. But what it does is eliminates all negatives from your mind, all negatives, all anger, all vengeance, everything from your mind. And there's just they can't get you mad. Nobody can get you mad. And no matter what happens, you're just smiling. You know, of course, you're physically deteriorating. And there's a, a point, you know, I mean, you can live without food for, you know, a, a month, you know. Um, as long as you have water and air, but, but really if you're, you're going to die, if you, you know, if, if you don't have a, a water or, or air. So, you know, I, I, it was going to be a slow thing, but they, they could see what's going to happen. So that, that was the challenge. And of course they saw it was happening and then they start tempting me, you know, and you know, waving food in my face and whatnot. I said, I'm sorry, I just can't eat. I had told them that I had prostate cancer and that I, you know, I was sick with that anyway, because um, I, I had an enlarged prostate at the time that they thought might be. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a good story to stick with. And I'd had a friend that just died of it, so I knew the symptoms. And I told him that, you know, uh, I'm here to do this story on you, but um, I, I'm going to need this medicine, uh, special medicine. And they said, well, tell us what, write it down, and we'll have our, our doctor bring it out to you. And I said, well, it's, it's special stuff from California. <laughs> they kind of just laughed at me. <laughs> Yeah, you got to do what you got to do, right? And they didn't really believe you, though. Even when you're starving yourself, they didn't. that wasn't enough to compel them to do something, was it? Well, I, I made them believe me. I made them believe me. And um, I, it, it, it sounds pretty disgusting, but I, I needed blood. And I know if I cut myself, they would see that. So I had to get my own blood out of my body uh, in the nighttime. So I took a key and... Uh, and rammed it up into my sinuses. And um, not, not an easy thing to do. I, I put it up there and kind of wiggled it around and got a little trickle, but I, I needed blood. So I uh, put it up there and put my hand over it and, and basically punched myself in the nose. And I got a good flow going. So I'd sprayed it around my crotch and around the cement floors in this deserted casita in the mountains. And then in the morning, they, they see it, you know, and they're asking me what's up, and I said, "Well, I'm I'm peeing blood. I told you that I have this prostate cancer, so I'm I'm dying, you know, I'm bleeding to death." And uh, now they're panicking, and I hear them on the radio, you know, Santander and Sangre Sangre. They're talking about blood and this and that. And so I'm I'm doing this every night. And they send a guy out, Roberto. He's a political officer officer from the city. I mean, the mountain campesinos are five foot five, and this guy's like six feet tall. Campesinos are tough, rugged people, and this is a, a gangly kid, you know, a university student. And he saw me, I was all eaten up by bugs and blood and everything. <laughs> that guy walked in and looked at me and he just turned away. And I said, no, no, don't you turn away, you look at me. This is how you free Columbia. And he was, uh, he was pretty startled, you know, we had a conversation and uh, he was pretty startled. And that was when a decision was made to release me. You speak pretty good Spanish, so you were able to communicate and hear what they're talking about. The, uh, the strange thing is it's, um, I could read and write with them better. So we, we wrote things down when everything had to be clear because their accent, there was other hostages that were from Medellin and from uh, Bogota that didn't understand their captors either. 
I didn't realize there's other hostages with you. I'd forgotten about that. Oh, only occasionally, only occasionally. And uh, I had been there longer than them, so I was I was beat up, and the bugs just eat you alive. And they had just been freshly captured and looked at me. I, I couldn't see what I looked like. I didn't have a mirror, but by the look on their face, I know it was pretty bad because they're looking at me, going, "Uh oh." <laughs> but I mean, these guys—they are from—they're hillbillies. They're way up there. Now, um, some of them have never been to a city, and some of them had never seen asphalt. You know, they—they're just up there. So, kind of like uh, kids up in the mountains of Arkansas in the, in the U.S. that that had never been to a city, we, we wouldn't be able to understand how they speak either, or Appalachia. They end up wanting to get rid of you before you die, basically. Do they get something for it? Not that I know of. Um, there was rumors that there was a prisoner exchange, and then there was this and that, and I tried with the FBI under the Freedom of Information Act. I appealed it. I had my state senators, and, you know, it's a, you know, national security and this and that, and they, they won't release the information. I've, I've, I've tried everything. Uh, my guess is that they had assets in, um, in various organizations and, and whatnot. And even though they release things, they redact them so heavily, but um, they're very, very secretive about it. You know, and frankly, I, I complete closure for that. I, I would like to see um, what was going on because they, they jacked up my friends over this because they said, you know, if, if you're not going to do nothing, we will. And uh, one one of my close friends, Dennis Hoff, he um, he got hold of he got hold of some uh, ex army rangers, you know, down in Colombia, and he was going to try to do a rescue, which is a good thing he didn't try because they they'll kill you first. You're you're first to die. They'll kill a hostage. And um, so the CIA gets wind of it, you know, and then um, you know my friend came down, uh, Joe came down, flew down to coordinate all that stuff, and he was looking for me. He actually found my motorcycle. Oh. And they didn't. They didn't feel the FBI was doing enough, and they said, "Well, don't worry. We're 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 doing what we can." And um, yeah, maybe they were. Maybe they weren't. I don't know. But I guarantee you, if if it had been one of their relatives, they'd have been doing something differently. I can't imagine what it would have been like to walk out and find you know the 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 ambulance is actually there. That there's people there that are really going to rescue, especially after all the head games they played with you. And I know it was extremely emotional for you. So. When you escape this, this horrible, horrible situation, how on earth do you still have the drive to continue your journey? I, 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 number one, I didn't believe it. When, when, uh, when they told me I was being released and they threw me over the side of a mule and we're going for a couple hours and, and the trail forked and it went up and then it went down and, you know, mas arriba, mas abajo. And, the, you know, because I looked down, I saw a river with a road. Here's the first sign of something. I saw a dirt road, you know, and I'm. Um, hoping that the mule goes down. It didn't went up on Masa Riva. And I said, all this for nothing. It didn't work. And then a couple hours later, I look over the edge and we're going back down again. And I see this white uh, SUV with a big uh, red cross on the roof and on the doors. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, as bizarre as this sounds, I, I just cursed them. I, I said, turn the mule around. I'm not going down there. They said, no, it's true. You're being released. I said, no, take me back take me back in the mountains. And they said, no, 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 tranquilo, tranquilo. I said, no. And I came down, you know, finally, and, and um, I was pretty shook up. You, you can't let yourself believe it. Because if I let myself believe it, and if it wasn't, that, I knew that was it for me, it was done. And I got down and I, 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 I fell off the mule and, and to my face in the dirt. And this one commandante had been, been kind of friendly with me. I heard him yell, pick him up, you know. 
and this gorgeous Italian woman with these little wireframe glasses walks up to me and she's got this clipboard. And she says, hello, Mr. Hickstead, I'm Annalisa Di Paola, I'm a delegate from the International Committee of the Red Cross. And I'm here to take you to a representative of your government. And I, I won't say what I said to her, but it was, I insulted her and called her names and I said, you're one of them, I don't believe you. And she said, no, I understand. And, you know, we're, we're gonna take you uh, back to Medellin to the Red Cross Center and this and that. And it's gonna take about 20 minutes. The commandante has to sign some documents and I guess it's some international protocol for prisoner of war, whatever. Strange that all of a sudden they're going to follow the international protocol, but <laughs> so um, they, they take me over to the Red Cross wagon the whole time. You just all I can say is that it sounds bizarre what I'm telling you, but you just can't let yourself believe it, you know. And I was completely beside myself uh, uh, mentally, you know. And so eventually she comes back in, and I said, "We're even if you are who you say you are, we'll never get out of these mountains. They're full of them. This is all ELN patrolled." I've been up here for weeks and I said, there's no way out. She holds up her credentials and she's waving them and she said, no. She said, um, they respect the neutrality of the Red Cross and, and we've advised them that we're bringing a, a prisoner out. And so they're standing down. And I didn't believe it until we got to Medellin. And I mean, the Red Cross Center there looked like a prison that steel bars, just like a prison, you know, to the front door. And once they opened that and I got inside, I, I felt like I was uh, somewhat safe. Then it struck you that it was over and you were free. <sighs> yeah, I mean, so much is going through your head, you know. It, and, you know, of course, they said, you're hungry, you want something? I said, yeah, I want some chicken. So they, <laughs> they bring me this whole chicken. I don't know if you can imagine what your stomach is like after four weeks of nothing but a little cup of rice and then a week of nothing. I, I ate some chicken. Of course, I was sick instantly. And then my brother called and said the, the motorcycle's on the way. So, And there's no question at that point. You're, you're just, you're going to get some food in you and, and get your gear together and off you go again. Well, there was a guy that um, wanted to bring me to his house, a Colombian guy um, that, um, was a doctor or something that my friend that came looking for me had met. And he said, he's going to, they had my, they had my friend deported that came looking for me. They ordered him out of the country uh -huh. uh, for interfering. Yeah. Anything to do with interfering or negotiating with uh, one of these terrorist groups down there is, uh, is a felony. Yeah. You can't, you negotiate. It's, it's, it's a felony in Colombia. And so they, uh, they deported him, but um, he had managed to contact one of, one of the, uh, sergeants uh, in the Colombian army that got released before me. And, and we agreed, we had written each other's phone numbers in the shape of a mathematical equation. So you couldn't tell it was a phone number unless you eliminated certain numbers. So if I got out first, I would contact his family. Or if he got out first, he'd contact mine. He got out first. And so my friend Joe that went to talk to him, he couldn't, couldn't speak. He was hysterical. Couldn't, couldn't carry on a conversation. And, and frankly, so was I. So was I. When you see hostages, talking on TV after they're released. They're so heavily sedated. You're just, you're just out of your mind. Took, took me four months to be able to have a conversation. 
The fact that you were in the bush and that these people operate in the bush doesn't mean that they're um, not sophisticated. Because I remember hearing and reading that you would, uh, I, I guess through that connection, is that what made them take your website down so they couldn't find any more information about you? Yeah. I mean, they asked me for, uh, they asked me for my social security number. So I'm thinking, what would they want that for? And they're going to do some kind of property profile. And I used to have a ranch in the mountains and, you know, are they going to find that, you know, landowners or, or the enemy of the Marxist doctrine, you know, and, and whatnot. So I, I, I didn't know. So the FBI told them, take the website down and everything and don't go to the media. And that's actually a pretty good strategy. And, and I see hostages now that get grabbed and the families are so desperate. They want the media there. And it's really a bad, really a bad move because that's how they determine who you are. Unless you're a, like a, somebody they already know. But if it's a random kidnapping and they just grab an American or a Canadian or a German, then they just, uh, they're, 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 they're co-guerrillas uh, co in the city just get on the internet and they look for, for noise about you. And if it's headlines, oh, they grab this American guy, then, they, then you, that raises your profile. They go, well, he's rich. He's important. He's rich. But there was nothing. And they said, don't. And, of course, my friends are like, we want to go to the media. And the FBI said, don't. And they took their advice on that. And they said, in fact, take his website down. Take all traces of him off. And I was telling them basically a similar story. I was pointing to my tattoo from being an outlaw biker. And I said, you know what, my government doesn't, you know, they'd be happy if you killed me. You know, they don't like people like me. I'm nothing to my government. So that's what you want to do is you want to minimize your profile. And um, that's one thing I, I really agree with on their tactics. Um, you know, when they grab people in Syria and, and, and whatnot is, is keep quiet about it. That's, that's the worst thing you can do. If, if, if they're allowing documentary filmmakers and they did that you know right after me they grabbed some other americans and they let some document the, you know the, the kidnappers the FARC, let the uh what did the documentary filmmakers come in and interview the hostages well why do they do that they do that because it benefits them and that's what that's what gets it serious and that's what makes the government have to give concessions and whatnot so to keep quiet about it is the smartest thing so as much as they look they couldn't find anything about you and you appeared to be unimportant yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so between that and it looked like I was going to basically die any second. They, you know, I'm, I, they think I'm hemorrhaging and what that I became a hot potato. They couldn't get rid of me fast enough because uh, they always release when a, when a foreign is released, it's a Red Cross helicopter comes and gets you. And it was tied up. Their helicopter was tied up in another part of Colombia for two more days. And uh, they didn't think I was going to live that long. And I might not have. And so they, that's when they, they brought me out on the mule and, and brought the wagon in behind enemy lines and took me out that way. But that's almost unheard of like that. Your friend found your bike. Was your gear there? No. In fact, he came back the next day and it was gone. But, uh, he, you know, they, um, they found it in this, um, in this little uh, uh, casita where, where, uh, where they, the, the rebels had sat like a deserted casita or manchita by the side of the road. And they had found that because they, he found the bus driver. It's, it's not such a long shot because there's not much traffic out there. And they had stopped in a restaurant. And it was because I, I had um, been posting that I always say pollo, pollo asado, pollo asada. And they, they, as, as Joe was driving and backtracking, he found a restaurant that said 
uh, poor Yogasada. <laughs> so he stopped there and he's showing him pictures. And they go, oh, we remember that guy. Here's his car. He gave us his website. And so he's out in the parking lot and he's talking to a bus driver. He goes, yeah, I, you know, I saw the guy when they grabbed him, you know. It was the ELM. So Joe got more information and he went back to that spot. And uh, actually, then the next day they moved the bike and he found where they moved it and back into this little uh, pueblito called San Francisco. And he found it, but it was it was too dangerous to go back there, and, and the, nobody else was was going to help. And then they then they deported Joe, so all that was happening real fast. If you could go back and look at the situation, how it came about, and how you ended up in that spot, is there anything that you would change about what you did leading up to it? Um, or if you could warn somebody else, for instance, give somebody else some tip on how to not get into that situation? No, no. I I had a gut feeling, and I could say trust your gut. And that's a fine line when, we're, when you do adventure travel. I mean, you're doing it, you know, for a little bit of the risk. I would go as far as say anybody rides a motorcycle. Isn't part of it the risk? Why aren't you in a car? You're on a bike. Even if you're just riding back and forth to work or, or just taking country roads, part of it's the risk. That's part of the, the draw. And so you have to ask yourself in your adventure travel, you know, um, could be a bad weather pattern. Do I stop here or do I keep going? Because I've seen those warnings before and I made it. Or, the, you know, the government's, you know, travel advisories were about this and I got there and it was all BS. You have to make that decision. You know, and I had the most horrible feeling right before this happened. And I never had that feeling again until I was about to cross into Afghanistan later. And that time I listened to my gut. And so, you know, you just got to ask yourself, you, if you turn around now, you always, every time you get that gut feeling, is it, is it, you know, is it the real thing or are you just scared or you're just tired or, that's the, that's the adventurer's dilemma. You know, if you're someone about to summit Everest, you, you know, you see the storm clouds coming in, you're thinking, can I get there in time? And can I get up and back in time? And, you know, you got to roll those dice or I, you know, I just sit here and then maybe it's a month of foul weather. I'm stuck in base camp, you know? So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a dilemma. I don't know. And, and we're warned about everything, every step of the way. You're warned about Iran, the terrible Iranians, you know, and talk to any overland traveler. They're the nicest people in the world. You know, and, and uh, I was in Pakistan. I had a tremendous, tremendous hospitality in Pakistan, you know, and every, everybody that does what I did will tell you the same thing. You know, don't, don't believe the warnings. But on the other end, yes, stuff can happen. Somebody could say, you know what, don't ride that motorcycle because, you know, you'll get in a car wreck or somebody will turn in front of you. Yeah, it could happen. So... <laughs> You know, I, I just enjoy, you know, enjoy life and ignore the naysayers. And I mean, if, if there's a full on war zone, don't don't go through it. But, you know, I wouldn't ride across Syria now, but I didn't have any problems when I did it before. It's interesting. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and and often you'll hear someone talk about uh, I don't know, say somebody who does something stupid and and gets in a you know has a has something bad happen to them, and not, nothing to do with what we're talking about here. But um, and people will say, oh well, how could they he or she be so stupid? You can see that one coming. But how many of us have done something, and one time it works, and the next time the, another person? gets caught, you know, gets, get, ends up getting the negative result out of, out of what we've done. How many times have we, you know, grabbed the knife that's falling off the counter and go, whoa, that was close. I just yeah. grabbed the knife by, you know, by reaction and I, and I could have slipped my hand open, but it didn't. I caught it. I was okay. So it's easy to look at, you know, differently when you're standing back surveying it after the fact. Yeah. I, and I don't discount the dangers. It's like, 
if you get through Central America right now, there's some rough spots in, in El Salvador and Nicaragua. And if you didn't get robbed or kidnapped, you come out of there and go, oh, it's, you know, it, it, you know, it's just a horror story. Well, no, there's a lot of fact behind it. But I would say you travel with a positive attitude. You keep your eyes on the road and not on the ditch. And I, I made some mistakes on that ordeal in Colombia. You know, I, I almost talked myself into that because I was so fixated on it. You know, there's so many people telling me all these things that I just began to believe it myself. And I think part of, part of it was my own fault. You know, I, I got off my game. My game is 100% positive. If my house is on fire, I'll tell you, it's a great day to toast marshmallows. I have so much positive energy, I glow in the dark. I just beat terminal cancer four and a half years ago. And, and um, you know, I'm completely cancer-free. There ain't a cell left in me. And that was all attitude. A good surgeon and, and a good attitude. But that just goes for everything. And, you know, when you do survive those crises and those disasters, and you just look at it, you know, somewhere along the line, I'm going to laugh at this or this. You know, it may take a while, but every disaster, every disaster is a springboard to the next level up. And if you think about it, if you're if you're alive right now and listening to this, you've had some disasters and you're still alive because you came through it. And if you think in retrospect, when that crisis hits you or that disaster and you're down to both your knees and they're shaking, you look around, there's a sword and a shield and you could stand and fight. The choice is always ours. We could stand and fight or lay down and die. And I, and I believe that with every fiber of my being. And I think that most people that do adventure travel believe that too. You know, I hear some guys got some real negative attitudes out there, but not very many. Though most people will be talking about the good stuff. You know, if you ask me what went wrong in my trips, that other than Colombia, you know, I, I couldn't tell you. I'd have to stop and think about it. All I can tell you is all the good stuff, the great people, the wonderful smiles, the hospitality, just the just you know, <laughs> the euphoria of adventure travel. But I mean, what about the time you were in a snowstorm and <laughs> you were buried to your axles in mud in Borneo? Have you, you know, forgotten? All this stuff that yeah, you know, it's there, but it's like part of it. Would you do it again? <laughs> Probably not. There's certain places, you know, I'm not sure, you know, uh, there, you know, that I'd go everywhere again, but I'd always go somewhere, you know. I think it's akin to someone walking down a broken sidewalk and you can choose to concentrate on all the cracks and the breaks and how difficult the walking is, or you can look up and concentrate on what you, the, the beauty that you're seeing around you. And it's both the same experience. Yeah. And, and, and be cognizant. What happens is in the West, we get in these Nerf ball worlds, especially in the U S where, you know, every disaster is covered. You got insurance. If this happens, you got a doctor for that. You got, you know, something, you know, just going to, Take the edge off whatever happens to you. You know, you're going to walk down the street. If there's a hole in the sidewalk, there's going to be bright fluorescent cones all around it. And somebody asking you to sign a waiver before you walk down the sidewalk any further. You know, in Mexico, there could be a hole in the sidewalk and not one Mexican is going to step in that hole. But every American will or every foreigner will because they weren't looking. Mexicans know there's a chance that that sidewalk's going to have a hole in it or an awning's gonna be right about forehead level and gonna bash you in the forehead. Um, they don't bash their forehead because they know that exists. And we would eliminate all that, you know, all the things that can go wrong, you know. We don't want the kids to wrestle in high school and take away football because they might get hurt or there's gonna be winners and losers and a loser gonna get his feelings hurt. And all that stuff happens, you eliminate all the risk in life and that's, I don't know. It's, it's all over from there. That's why the, the developing world is the real world. We do not live in the real world. 
it's it's it's, it's that's the real world with 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 all its pitfalls and and everything. And anybody that's traveled internationally through developing countries, you ask them who's happier, us or them. I mean, the kids that are laughing, they're laughing hysterically. They're having such a wonderful time. And, you know, they don't have enough to eat or they don't have health care or whatever. But they accept that. And they have large families because, you know, if they got 10 kids, you know, only seven of them are going to survive. And they know that, you know, so they're prepared for it. I mean, it hurts them as much as it does us. But, um, you know, or probably it's just different how they take things in stride because, they realize, you know, we try to eliminate all that, but when we do, we take away the core of living. We, taste, we take away the real flavor of life. It's kind of taking responsibility for yourself, isn't it, that we sort of lack, I think, in the modern world, where we expect everything to be done, and like you said, everything is insured, and that somebody's engineered this and made sure it's safe for me to go that way, instead of taking responsibility for myself and saying, you know, it's up to me yeah. to pay attention. Yeah, yeah, and, and everything that went right today in your life, take responsibility and pat yourself on the back. And no matter what went wrong, if somebody pulled out in front of you and crashed into you, it was your fault. You accept the good with the bad that we are total, we, we accept total responsibility for what goes right and what goes wrong. I mean, I, I learned that when I was teaching my students, if they came back with gold medals, you know what, that was good coaching. And if they came back, if they didn't, if they didn't place or they lost or something went wrong, that was me, that was my fault. It was an error in my judgment, an error in my coaching. I didn't try hard enough. And whether that was my performance or the performance of my students. But I suspect at that point, you're not beating yourself up over it. You're learning and, and sort of moving towards something else. Hey, we learn more from defeat than from victory. Mm-hmm. What positive came out of your capture and imprisonment and everything else that went along with your time with the ELN? Oh, that, that whole Colombian thing was uh, a blessing. Probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. You know, um, coming out of a situation like that, you, you have two ways to go. And you have to make a serious decision right away. And, and a, a lot of uh, enlightenment struck me while I was basically in that last week with them starving myself when my thinking got so clear. And I could consume the rest of my life with anger and vengeance and, you know, think about how I could get even and, you know, all the terrible things that happened. Or uh, I could turn the page and say, this is what happens when the oppressed people um, have no alternative. When you take a, an otherwise peaceful mountain campesino person that picks up a gun to fight, that's the last thing. That's a peaceful person. What happened to him to get him to do that? And what I did with my book was uh, I said what happened, but I also said why. I interviewed my captors. And, of course, the critics said, oh, I had Stockholm Syndrome where I took their side. I was on their side. Prior to that, I wrote articles about the campesinos in Latin America. And that's not a derogatory term. term. It's a, that's a, a campesinos, it's a, the gente del campo, the, the people of the country. It's just country folk. And they're the nicest people, the most humble people that you'll find any, anywhere in Latin America. And so I was already on their side. I, I, I wasn't converted by the ELN. I already, that was the irony is I, I told them, I said, you know what, I'm already on your side. I don't know why you're doing this to me. I already... I already see it from your point of view that they, they were buying that. But I mean, it's, it, it's, for me, it was, it was the best experience ever. And I had to come out of there and say, you know what, I got to greet this thing with a smile and, 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 and turn the page. Because if I have one negative emotion, you know, obviously people are saying, oh, I bet you feel like getting even. Or you ever want to go back after those guys? I said, no, I never let that thought enter my mind. Not for a second. 
Not for a split second will I allow a negative thought to enter my mind. Because you got to ask yourself, what do you want to be today, happy or sad? What do you want to do? You want to frown or you smile? And I firmly believe that living well is the best revenge. So whatever the deal is with those poor guys, they're in the mountains still marching around somewhere in one group or another. And uh, I'm on a motorcycle every day riding through the mountains. And I, I got to ride around the world. And that was my stimulus to continue around the planet. You know, <laughs> so, yeah, thank you, ELN. You know, I, I don't want I don't want another experience like that. One is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading that it was either in your book or something somewhere else where you wrote an article about this. And I was really taken by that. Uh, I thought, what an excellent thought process to not even allow yourself to have the hatred or the dislike or, or feel any ill feelings towards them, because you don't want to waste your energy on that. You don't want to direct your energy there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's Every human being, we should all be thinking in those lines. Isn't that why people go to church and whatnot? I mean, I, I practice this in my meditation and yoga and believe it or not, martial art. And, you know, combat is a form of meditation, believe it or not. So um, it, it, it's, yeah, eliminate the negatives. <laughs> it's real basic. You want to be happy or you want to be sad? You want to be happy or you want to be mad? So it's real easy to be mad. You can turn on CNN and get mad. Turn on Fox News and get mad. Real easy to do. <laughs> you kept going on your trip. And because of that, that's why your story is different. Yeah, there's terror here and, and there's a horrible story, but there's a great story because you went on. You, you turned this story, which could have just ended up in the news as, oh my God, this is the reason why you do not travel into a story about life, really, about perseverance, about having goals rather than terror. Is that just who Glenn Hagstead is, or, or did you come out with that new thought process? Oh, I think it was an evolutionary thing because there was a lot of stuff going on that I just did, but I didn't understand why I was doing it. And I, I got an email one day from National Geographic Channel, and they said, hey, we read your book. We'd like to make a documentary. Well, I'm not really a writer. I just published some journals, you know, because it was a good story, kind of really <laughs> poorly told. <laughs> I know I'm not going to win a Pulitzer Prize, but it was a good story. But I didn't believe it was National Geographic. They, you know, there's a line a mile long just to talk to them. And <laughs> I don't even know where the end of the line is. So I think it's, it's a hoax. And I delete the email. <laughs> I think, why would National Geographic talk to me? <laughs> So I, I, I get a call from London a couple hours later, you know, what's the deal, Mr. Hagstead? Are you on or not? You know, I went, well, let me think about it. Yeah. <laughs> so they said, well, okay, well, you know, we'll get back to you in a month. You know, we're checking our funding for this project and this and that. So I go, ah, they're stroking me. So I resist the urge to write to them and say, you know, we're still going to do it and this and that. And a month later they said, well, we're having some problems. And they did that for eight months. So I think, ah, it's, it's a stroke. And then all of a sudden I get an email and, and um, I said, wheels up, 8 o'clock, there's a ticket waiting for you. I was in Mexico, and they said, we're flying you back to California. We're going to start filming. But the whole time, I'd been talking to this director. And, um, I mean, when you do stuff with National Geographic, they go over. They go <laughs> up your butt. They ask everything. At, the, at this altitude, what was the weather? What was the temperature? They fact-check everything. They talked to representatives of the Red Cross, of the ELM, everything. And so he interviewed me. He went over, oh, all the so much of my book, I mean, we would talk for hours at a time. And this, he was a director, Neil Rawls, and he just wanted to get it right. He said, this is a very uh, unusual story. He says, I want to get it right. And he goes, at this moment, what were you thinking? 
at that moment, what were you thinking? And I, I mean, he went in, in depth, I, beyond my comprehension. You know, when they shot this documentary, uh, I have no idea, maybe 40 hours, 50 hours of footage for a 45 minute show. But they did a, a desert shot where they put these rails out in the desert, they unpacked them and put a cart on there just to pull a guy so uh, that was filming, it was, you know, the guy, the cameraman was on this little cart and they pulled him this 50 feet on the cart to get a shot it was two seconds, three seconds. Wow. And they put a slow moving uh, uh, camera on my eyeball to take pictures of uh, traffic reflecting off my eyeball. And we shot for four hours and it's, oh, I don't know if it's a full second on that documentary. They were so thorough on, on everything they did and first class on the filming and whatnot. And um, the, the, he sent me the uh, director's copy before it came out on television. That's how much trust he had because he would never work for Nat Geo again if they, you know, if, if that got out, you know, before that, if somebody stuck it on YouTube before it came out on TV. But um, he sent it to me. He says, I got to hear it from you. You know, how close was I? And I said, except for the fact that they had shaved heads and, the, and your guys in the movie had long hair. That's like watching, uh, you know, like that's what happened. You know, that's it. Exactly. You know, it was very, very strange. And, you know, that became the most widely used on that series. And it was translated into 34 language languages, including Mandarin for the Chinese market. Uh, it's amazing, Glenn, because when, when we contacted you about this interview, um, after we set up our, our time and everything, I, I started to go through and, and just do the research. And I, I came to your website and was like, wait a second, like, this was on National Geographic. Now, now you have to realize that I haven't seen television for over 25 years, I think. Uh, yeah, last time congratulations. I, <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I'm missing out or not. It's hard to say, but from, from the little bits I hear, I, I, I think not. But in any case, when I come to something like this, it was just like, wow, okay, well, I feel like I may have came in at the at the wrong angle, not realizing just uh, how big of coverage that you, that you received from this. Well, yeah, I mean, um, but the real story, I think, is the subsequent follow-up journey around the world, you know? Yeah, the fact that you continued on and then you, uh, you but you didn't even, uh, like, I mean, I thought I would be a little scared, <laughs> to say the least, if I had even part of, you know, your your willpower and I managed to make it out and I, and I persevered and I went on. You didn't seem to hold back for the rest of the trip. You seemed to just go out there and, and do it like you had never run into any trouble. Well... Yeah, I mentioned it, but I didn't dwell on it. But I was an emotional wreck. I couldn't, um, you know, as a guy, we're not supposed to admit we ever cry. But I, somebody talked to me like, have you been to Columbia for months? I just, I would break down. I, I couldn't even talk. You know, and it, for me, you know how it is. We're motorcycle riders. You twist the throttle. That gets rid of everything. That's our therapy. And, and, and don't we have a, a slogan that you never see a motorcycle parked outside a therapist's office? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the, the best ad I ever saw for motorcycles was a fold-out ad in the middle of a motorcycle that showed these rolling green hills with this ribbon of black asphalt and a guy just leaning into a turn, dragging a knee. And it said, the caption was, by the time I hit third gear, I couldn't remember a single thing she said. <laughs> <laughs> and it could go both ways, you know, yeah. both ways, you know. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, for me to, to keep going on the bike, it took a month to get a replacement bike down there. That was because of U.S. Customs, not, not uh, in Ecuador. You know, we're out three days there, but it was just U.S. Customs just screwing things up. 
But I, and that was driving me crazy. I knew once I got on that bike and twisted that throttle, I had to keep going. But it was like, I felt like this avalanche was chasing me. So if you could picture running down a hill with an avalanche, you know, coming after you, you just got to keep running. And that avalanche, I, I felt like if I got back to California, I had to get to Tierra del Fuego. But once I got back to California, then everything would be cool. I don't care. The avalanche can hit me, you know, and, and, and of course it did. But I, that's why I was, I was hurrying and, uh, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to dwell on it, but it, it shook me up pretty bad. Actually, really bad. You rode to Tierra del Fuego. Um, did you turn around and go back home at that point? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. I got down there and I got food poisoning. <laughs> Celebrated by myself in some hotel room. Wouldn't had the requisite picture taken, you know. Or I think I used my own timer on the camera or whatever. And then uh, rode back. And it was like miserable, freezing, rainy all the way down. I had Argentina. It was like this great weather. When you got back, what did you do? I was I was pretty shook up. I had to go back to Latin America. I went I went back for four months and I went down to Nicaragua and rented a um, apartment down there for a while. I just had to sort things out. And um, I just said the only thing I can do is only one thing. I got to keep going. Got to finish riding around the world. And I had a website where I was posting journals as I traveled. And I, I went into BMW and um, I talked to BMW North America and BMW dealers of of Southern California. And uh, they both offered me a motorcycle and uh, it was almost, uh, almost a rivalry. The, the guys down South, uh, the, it's called the DAG, the dealers advertising group. They said, um, Jim Gardner said, tell you what, go with us and we'll give you a bike this week. We'll have a, a dealer's meeting and, um, and uh, we'll give you a bike, man. Cause we, we need the advertising or whatever, you know, for that's what it's for. Sure. And I said, I said, cool. So I went to the meeting and here's all the dealers, you know, and I'm, Grubby, grubby old Glenn with my ragged motorcycle clothes. They said, we've been reading your website. We like you. We like what you're going to do. Uh, here's the keys. Here's a pink slip. We're doing it on a handshake. There's no contract. You always afford four slideshows when you come back. Wow. So they thought I was going to go to Europe, you know, and do the Alps and maybe go to, you know, St. Petersburg or to the Kremlin or something. And I brought them pictures of camping with the Mongolian nomads and cannibals in Borneo and naked natives in Ethiopia with plates in their lips and spears and bones in their nose. And they were like dumbfounded. I, I, I was supposed to have gone a year and I came back a couple of years later and I did the four slideshows and it blew them away. And they wrote to BMW North America and they hired me to do 26 shows nationwide. I just, they flew me around the country and uh, it was really kind of nice. I didn't realize that. What, what did you, you went and did slide presentations all around the country? Yeah, you know, and it's, it's, it's really about the people, isn't it? And some, I haven't seen that many. The only other real slideshow I've seen was Helga Peterson's. And I mean, that guy's so inspirational. I've never seen his work. I mean, he's the man. He took the ultimate adventure travel picture with that, his bike in the canoe. Oh, I, yeah. I saw that and, and I reflected on that picture every day of my life since I saw that, you know, that just like set the spark in me just seeing that picture. Yeah. It's you know, and I saw, yeah, I met him in, in Central America and he's, he's, I'm on an adventure and, and, and he's doing a, a, a video presentation for the BMW club down there. And it's, he's not the best speaker, but his video, it's something about Iceland, you know, and, motorcycles or like doing wheel stands across rivers and sliding sideways and all this crazy stuff. And he's like, well, here we are taking the bikes off the boat. Here we are riding the bikes. 
And then there's the bike in the water. But in the background, it's like all oh, this wild stuff and your heart's racing. And you're like, <laughs> man, I got to do something. So, I mean, and that, that guy's like the godfather of it all as far as I'm concerned, you know. <laughs> you know, I've only seen some of this stuff, but he's, he's the man, you know. Can you give us an idea of, of what your trip covered? Now, I don't want to give it all away because, Glenn, I want people to go out and get your books because they're two great reads. So I don't want to spoil the whole thing. Okay, I air freighted into Japan, rode around Japan, um, and then took the ferry over to Vladivostok. It's just uh, right on the basically the border of North Korea. It's on the edge of the Russian Far East in Siberia. And, you know, I, I rode uh, across, across Russia, and I did a detour down through the Mongolian Gobi Desert. And it was, you know, into Eastern Europe and then the Middle East and then uh, through Pakistan and up to Afghanistan and then down through India and Asia and off to uh, Indonesia and then up Africa. But, you know, it was like this, as, as, you, as I started out inching my way across Siberia, you know, I'm actually Norwegian. I was born in the U.S., but my family's all still in Norway. And here's all these uh, bright, bright, blue-eyed, blonde Norwegian. So clearly my ancestors had made it that far. You know, I get off the boat in Russia. I never saw Russians before. I didn't know anything about Russians. I just heard that they didn't like us and we're not supposed to like them. And they're staring at me and I'm staring at them. And it's like, cousin, you know, <laughs> they hadn't seen an American, you know. So as I'm, as I'm traversing across Siberia, it was so fascinating to see the footprints of history stamped on the faces of the people you know the skin goes olive and the eyes go slanted up and down and all of a sudden you know i'm in the middle of the gobi desert i'm looking into the eyes of the descendants of genghis khan you know and i'm just giddy the whole time this is a state of euphoria and as as we as motorcyclists know when we travel as opposed to a car we don't just see the landscape we merge with the landscape. Well, this journey for me around the world was a merging with the landscape of humanity. You know, it's it's traveling across Russia, you know, and you know, and there's a in Eastern Europe, and the, you know, there's the chiseled features of the Slavs, you know, and then all of a sudden you're in the Middle East, and it's the soft, dark eyes of the Arabs, and then you're in India with a sitar twanging in those. Those drums, those caplet drums in the background and the women in their fluorescent saris and those red dots on their forehead. And all of a sudden you're sliding down through Indonesia, you know, and it's the same deal. And then you're in Africa and you're zigzagging your way up and you're meeting African natives, you know, carrying spears and their, their skin is so black that it's blue. And, you know, they were swallowing the flash on your camera and you have to learn a whole different technique just to photograph them. And it's this phenomenal experience. And to me, it's just this magnificent, you know, journey, this merging with the landscape of, of humanity, you know. And when I came back, as everybody else, when you come back from something like that, everybody has questions for you and whatnot. And um, every, you know, one of the questions somebody said, did you have any regrets? You know, that's, what did you learn and this and that? Would you have any regrets? And I said, the only regret that I have is that I didn't spend one more day everywhere. 
And somebody standing there said, hey, there's a title. There's your title. (laughs) (laughs) And I bet you, I bet you everybody feels the same way. In fact, I met Daniel Ritz. He said, you know, I was going to name my movie that until I realized you had a book called that. (laughs) Yeah, we had Daniel Daniel on the show here. Um, Did you? Yeah, I think it was uh, the end of last year. And, oh, man. Uh, yeah, he's my hero. Yeah. He's my hero. Yeah, well, I have, couldn't say enough about him. You'll have to check our, our, I'll try and I'll send you the link to his, uh, to his show that we had him on. He was, he was good fun too. Yeah. I mean, he, he just like, I, I, I saw his thing and he, I, 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 he did with video what I try to do with words, you know, and, um, like I said before, I'm, I, I'm not the best writer in the world, but I write from my gut. And before I took off, I, I asked some professional writers, some real guys, what do you do? You know, uh, you know, I, I, as an athlete, you know, you, if somebody tells you to train, you know how to train. And they said, write every day. So I said, okay, I'll pick four hours and I'll write every day. So that was my training schedule. So no matter what, if I was 12 hours on my bike, I was four hours writing and editing or, you know, doing photo, you know, uploading photographs or something, you know, from my tent or. So, if I, but I recorded everything when it was fresh in my mind and I didn't change much. I was posting these journals on ADV Writer. And um, so a couple times a week, sometimes once a week that, you know, you could follow me around the world in real time. And, you know, it's just everything, how, how you feel, you know, when we're writing in that introspection that we go through. But at the end of the day, to be able to record that and I, I cleaned it up, but that's pretty much the way I felt at the end of the day. So the publishers, it's very tough for Americans to get published. Uh, in fact, it's almost impossible. Um, most guys have to self-publish or, or buy from the publishers that if you agree to buy X amount of books and whatnot, it's, it's very, very tough, you know, and, and um, they said, uh, you know, make a story for him. And I said, I, I, I really don't know how I'm not that skillful a writer. And uh, besides with a journal like this, they go, well, nobody's going to buy it. So ha ha ha. <laughs> it's been selling. I mean, my first book, it was uh, just went to paperback three years ago, but it was out 11 years ago. It was 10 years in hardback, you know, it just keeps selling, you know, and the, and uh, the last one, uh, that's been out, I don't know, five, five or six years now or longer. And that keeps selling. So and, and I think it's a lot of the good energy behind it. We donate 100% of the royalties to international aid organizations in the developing world. Uh, we focus right now on something called Room to Read. And we're busy building schools in Cambodia and Nepal. Uh, it's called, we, we give 1000 bucks in building materials and the local labor uh, does the work. So it's completely uh, interactive on that. And um, the, the people that, that donate there, or, or, or they take real small salaries to run this. And there were um, John Woods, uh, he was a former bigwig in, uh, in Microsoft in, in Asia, you know, one of the zillion dollar guys. And he gave up that position to start Room to Read. So a lot, a lot of good energy behind this. And I still do motivational uh, speaking tours and anybody wants to hire me. I didn't realize that you're donating 100% of the profit for these two books. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I feel like everybody that's done this journey, you're going to the developing world, you're going to see stuff that just leaves you sleepless. And, you know, this, at the time, it's, God, I got it. What am I going to do? I'm going to go home and do something. I've been de- traveling the developing world for half my life, and I never did anything. I said, this time I will. This time I will. And so, hey, what's the story? The story's about the people around us. And so... Technically, they should get something, and you're not going to ever find them again. So you just keep the circle going. And it's just like, how else can you pay them back? And, and that's what you do. Like uh, my home in California in a massive lawn, 
I just uh, have it out on the internet, any long rider coming through, you come stay with me, you know, I'll, I'll support you and take care of you. And if I, if, if you've got a good reputation on the internet, I'll just give you a key to my house, whether I'm there or not. So I have so many people stay at my place in Mazatlan. <laughs> I've met them in person, you know, like a year or two later. So I stayed at your house. I go, who are you? You know, <laughs> glad to meet you. But that's that because so many people took me in, you know, like you're traveling across Russia, you know, and all this stuff in the media where they're, you know, they're ramping us up to hate the Russians and the Russians hate us. And that's a bunch of malarkey. I got the Russia. Like I had the 72 year old man pick me up and shaking me, you know, and dragging me into to his just crumbling cabin in Siberia to give me his last crumbs of bread, you know. And you try to pay him the next day, and they slap their heart. They say, hospitality's from the heart. And, you know, you consider at that moment the irony of the fact that at that, at that moment, our government and their government respectively have thermonuclear weapons targeting each other, targeted on each other, and they can't do enough for us and, and vice versa. So we, we got to do what we can to keep that hospitality you know, that was it everywhere in the world. It, it was dumbfounding, you know. And that was everywhere. I was in those uh, Muslim countries and Arab countries. You know, friendliest, nicest people you ever want to meet. Yeah, it's really the governments that don't get along, not so much the people. Yeah, well, that's my mantra. Go- governments may not get along, but people do. We get out and meet each other face to face, and it's a whole different story. And, boy, if we got out and traveled more, and that's a big that's the best and the biggest collective middle finger from us to terrorists around the world is we're not going to be afraid. And most important, we refuse to hate because what are they trying to do? They're trying to make us hate somebody for their religion, the killer of their skin or their nationality or whatever. And so they want us to be afraid. They want us to hide under the bed at home. And so the best thing that we can do, our collective middle finger, the all the people in the world is just to get out and shake hands with somebody we're not supposed to be friends to somebody that we're not supposed to like a, a different religion over a different skin color, a different nationality. And that's that re- refusal to hate. That's our weapon as the citizens of the world is just a refusal to hate. Both books are available as hard copy. The first one, Two Wheels Through Terror, and the other one is One More Day Everywhere. They're also available as ebooks and I think on Audible as well. And you can get more, more information on, uh, on the lunacy at, at strikingviking.net. Not .com. You'll get that really pretty uh, Swedish pool player, that gal. But if you go to strikingviking.net, you'll get to my website. And there's a lot of information on there. So uh, I also do the multimedia show for international aid organizations, uh, universities for free, just whatever it costs to get me there. And Glenn, any last thoughts? Uh, collectively, there's still the opportunity to change the world. Well, Glenn, thanks very much. Your story is amazing. Anyone who is the least bit interested in this is going to have to get the books to get a better idea or go by your website, certainly after they get the books and, and have a look at what you're doing. Thank you so much. All right. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course, I've been speaking with Glenn Hegstead. Glenn's website is www.strikingviking.net. You can find out more about Glenn there, or you can drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and we have the show notes there with links to Glenn's website and other things, and you can check out all the other episodes that we've done as well. My name's Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio, and that about wraps up another episode. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Hey, if you haven't already, drop by our website, 
Leave us a comment. Fill out the uh, comment form. Also, we got a new program now where we are taking audio feedback. We're collecting that from you, the listener. So if you follow us on Facebook, you're going to see that from time to time, we're going to post questions or things that we're looking for to get input from you, the listener. And you're going to go to our website and you can click on this little button and record your input. Then we take that recording of you and we put it here on the show. So drop by Facebook and like our page, follow us there and make sure that you get in on the action. We want your input. If you haven't already dropped by iTunes, please buzz by iTunes. Give us a rating there. Let iTunes know what you think of the show. Thanks very much for listening. Adventure Rider Radio is made possible by Canoe West Media and special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. Hi, I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. And we are Two Wheeled Nomad, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Woo!